Well, good morning. John chapter 13, and you can find verse 18 is where we'll begin in just a moment. We are coming to a hard thing this morning because we come to Judas. Judas has been there all along with Jesus since he called the disciples. Judas has been through everything that the disciples have been through. And after this morning, he will be gone from their number. What went wrong with Judas? His problem was clearly not some things. It was not a lack of example. He sat at the feet of Jesus for three years. It wasn't a lack of teaching. He sat at the feet of Jesus for three years. What went wrong with Judas? How are we, maybe a better question to ask is, how are we to understand Judas's place in the purposes of God? I think that by the time we end this morning, and we have a busy morning ahead of us here and what we're going to see, uh, my hope is that we will have together a much clearer sense of how God accomplished many things in his use of Judas. In fact, we could say this morning that Judas is going to demonstrate for us the truth of everything that Jesus has taught. Judas demonstrates for us what Christ has taught us in this gospel about ourselves, about entrance into his kingdom, about salvation. But doing this is painful. Seeing these things in the way we'll see it this morning is maybe an especially painful thing. Because what this is going to do for us is it takes deep, weighty, hard truths about sin and sinners. And it puts a name and a face to it. We can talk about those things in the abstract. We often do. We need to do that to understand them. We can talk about what's right and wrong. We can talk about what honors the Lord and what dishonors Him, what separates sinners from Him. But as soon as it wears the face of someone that we know, it becomes far more painful, doesn't it? And if it can wear Judas's face, it can wear the face of someone that we know and love. That's what makes it so painful. But we cannot be afraid of pain in those kinds of ways. We can't be so afraid of difficult things, hard truths, that we hide from them. In fact, the Bible just won't let us do that. And God's Word, we find, is not shy at all about God's purposes. For example, in using Judas like he does. And so this is the task for us this morning. Like I said, we come to a hard thing as we come to think about Judas. Let's begin by hearing John chapter 13, verses 18 to 30. We'll be here for most of our time this morning, but we'll look at a couple of other passages as well. And there's going to be two directions that we come at this subject from together. One focused on Judas himself, and the other focused more on Jesus, focused on how Jesus is preparing the eleven with this whole thing. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We pick up in verse 18. Jesus continues in this way. He says to the disciples, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. 
After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon, Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. There are two main headings that will guide us this morning. Uh, we'll spend the bulk of our time on the first of these two. Uh, the overarching ideas for us that we need to see are these. First, we'll put it this way. Jesus chose Judas in one way and rejected him in another. It's the first angle we'll take at understanding this. Jesus chose Judas in one way and rejected him in another. Second, we'll see. Jesus used Judas's betrayal deliberately as he prepared his disciples. So you see how the emphasis is first on Judas and second on Jesus in those ways. First, the way I'm opening this is to say that Jesus chose Judas in one way and rejected him in another. I, I find that to be a helpful statement to put a lot of things underneath because if we chase that down, we wind up dealing with a lot of the issues that are so challenging with the person of Judas. The most direct reason that we need to make this point about Jesus choosing Judas in one way and rejecting him in another is because of the words of our Lord. It's because Jesus has spoken both of choosing Judas and not choosing Judas. We can see the not choosing pretty deliberately here in verse 18, can't we? Jesus says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He's clearly speaking there about the one who will betray him. And on the subject here of choosing, Jesus definitively states that there is a sense in which he has not chosen Judas. And yet we also have his words in John 6, verse 70, he said there to the disciples, Did I not choose you, comma, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And it says, it continues by, by saying, He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus is known of the betrayal this entire time. But even there in chapter 6, already as he's beginning to tell the twelve that there's something unique about one of them. Yet he clearly is speaking of choosing Judas, doesn't he? So you could say, which is it? Did he choose Judas or did he not choose Judas? And the obvious answer is that he did choose him in reference to one thing, but in reference to another thing, he did not choose him. Jesus chose Judas to be one of the twelve which means he gave to Judas the incredible privileges that were afforded uniquely to those 12 men. And those privileges are tremendous. I mean, this is the group to whom he explained his teaching at times when everyone else was left in the dark. He enters a time in his teaching where he begins to teach only in parables. And for example, Matthew 13 says a lot about this. At that point, he had left the crowd with a set of parables and we read then in that chapter things like this. It says, Then the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, 
To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So he gave them access and insight into his teaching. He gave them other things as well. Listen to what we find in Matthew 10. He called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. And then it says, the names of the 12 apostles are these. And whose is the last name on that list? But Judas Iscariot. Jesus chose Judas to belong to the special, closest, most trusted of his disciples. And we'll come back to some of those things at points this morning. But just, just notice the distinction. That's the choosing here. And the choosing is the easy part. It's the not choosing that is the more difficult one and requires more of our thought. The question for us to ask is this. Judas was chosen to be one of the twelve. What, according to the scriptures, was Judas not chosen for? Or we could say passed over for. What was Jesus referring to in our text when he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Now, you can hear it even in the words that he gives there in verse 18, that we're getting some indications in this very text. If the ones that he has chosen or not chosen have to do with what he has just been speaking, he says, I am not speaking of all of you. Well, what that means is that if we remember what he was just speaking about, that's going to give us some, uh, some elements that do not apply to Judas. Does that make sense? I can go right up above verse 18 to begin to learn some things about what distinguishes Judas from the rest, those whom he has chosen. This will help me to know exactly what are the terms in which Judas has been passed over. And what we find that he's just been talking about have been the realities attached to those who belong to him by faith. Those who, he says there, will represent him in the world. So verse 16, he spoke in terms of them being his servants and his messengers. They are a group who, therefore, because they represent Christ, verse 17 tells us that they are blessed. Those are things, Jesus says here in verse 18, that don't apply to Judas. Now notice how he's describing that. That is not given to us simply as something in which Judas is different than the other disciples. This is very important. It's described to us as something for which Judas has not been chosen. This is how Jesus chose to, to express the difference. He says, I know whom I have chosen. And we have to ask the question here, in what sense does it make, uh, in what sense does Jesus speak here in terms, in terms of his choosing? What has Jesus done for those whom he has chosen that he has not done for Judas? We've already seen there's so much that he has done for Judas. He's given Judas his example. He's given Judas his teaching. He's given him his love. What he has not given him is life. He has not given him the life that comes only from Jesus Christ. We've seen it for the entirety of this gospel. Jesus is, in Jesus was life, and that life was the light of men. This is a light that he shines in the world for those who will come to him. And without the gift of life given by the Son, all the example in the world, all the teaching in the world, will do nothing but add to his condemnation. He has not chosen Judas to be a recipient of his saving grace. Jesus had said to us in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. You see, in Judas we find many of the themes we've already been exploring falling onto a single example. So we could say it in several ways. Judas has not been given as a gift by the Father to the Son. In exactly this sense, Jesus says, I have not chosen Judas. 
Another way that this is described in this gospel is by saying that those whom Jesus chooses in this way are those whom he guards. This is hugely important in understanding the distinction that the Bible is making about Judas and about Jesus' choosing in this way. Turn ahead with me just a bit to John chapter 17. And find verse 12. Jesus is praying for his disciples. He says there in verse 12, While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's Judas, the son of perdition, the son of destruction. Jesus says of the 11, I kept them. You hear that? How did he keep them? He says, I have guarded them so that, what's the result of his guarding? None of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Now, this begs a question, doesn't it? What is he saying here about the loss of the son of destruction? Was he lost? because Jesus tried to guard him and he just couldn't manage it? Is that the the point that Jesus is making here? Clearly that is not the point, because in fact that's the distinction that's being given. Jesus didn't guard him. Those whom he guards are those whom the Father has entrusted to him, has given him. He's already told us previously in John that the will of the Father is that none who are given to him would be lost. This is the will of the Father. The very distinction here is his guarding. He didn't guard Judas. But we could say it in ways that are even more provocative. And I think for a morning like this, we need to. Lest we misunderstand or fail to see the distinction that's being made. So add a couple little words in there. He didn't guard him on purpose. What was the purpose? He says, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Think of the things that that means. That means he could have, and he didn't. He could have guarded him, and he didn't. We're talking about the realm of salvation itself here, individual salvation. And Jesus declares that he could have guarded this man, and he chose not to, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. And while this is fresh, for us, and we don't come to these things just every day, do we? Or every week. As, it, as, it's, as it's on our minds here, it does us well to sit with it for a minute. And so we're going to lean into it a bit. We'll say, let's put it this way. I mean, we're being forced to wrestle with this. I want to suggest to you, wrestling with this, as difficult as it is at times for us, is the kind of difficulty that growth comes out of. Growth comes out of difficulty, not out of ease. And I would suggest to you that this very idea that's being given to us in our text and here in John 17 forces tremendous growth into our theology. Can I suggest to you two ways that it does this? One is the wrestling that we feel itself. That wrestling that we feel at this can prove insightful for us. I mean, what do we feel naturally when we consider statements like the one we just made? Jesus could have guarded Judas and chose not to. There is a natural and even an emotional response that comes up in us, isn't there? And it's summed up well in three words. That's not fair. That's not fair. If you're not feeling that, or you haven't felt that at these notions, you're probably not paying attention right now. How could God choose to act in that way? How could he still hold Judas accountable then if Judas needed Jesus' guarding and Jesus did not give it to him? My friends, that's not only an understandable reaction, Can I tell you, it's actually a good sign that that is the way that we're reacting. It's a good sign because of what we're told in Romans chapter 9. 
Paul lays out the exact same descriptions and declarations in Romans 9 concerning Jacob and Esau. He says, God chose Jacob, God passed over Esau, and then he goes out of his way to emphasize, and by the way, God did that before they were born or had done anything good or evil. God said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So that God's purposes according to election would stand. Paul says all of these things. And he sums them up like this. He says, so then, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Sounds a lot like what we are wrestling with this morning as Jesus speaks in John 17 concerning Judas. But we're often forced into a, a difficulty in those kind of moments. How can I be sure if I'm hearing Paul rightly there? I know how that sounds. But could it, could it be that I'm misunderstanding him? Is there a way to know that I'm hearing him rightly? Well, here's a way. <laughs> here's a way. If Paul then were to tell us what the natural response to that idea would be, what if he were to tell us how we would respond naturally to a right hearing of him? And what if that response were to match the way that I react when I hear Jesus' statements in John 17? Wouldn't that be a good indication to me that I'm actually hearing Paul correctly? What's Paul say next in Romans chapter 9 after that? You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? It's the exact same objection that our own hearts naturally felt in John 17. How can he hold Judas accountable then? Even before we dive into it, it demonstrates that this explanation Jesus is giving matches what Paul is describing in Romans 9. And in fact, we're hearing him rightly as they say these things. And by the way, just notice that this is precisely the opposite of the alternative. You think of the opposite of this understanding of salvation, which is called historically the Arminian understanding, the opposite of what we're seeing here. Just notice that the opposite of this has never elicited the response that Paul anticipates to his statements. The alternative argument from what we're seeing here is that God chooses whom he will save on the basis of foreknowledge. He looks ahead in time and he sees who will freely trust in Christ and who will freely reject him. Those who will trust Christ, God chooses. Those who will choose to reject Christ, Jesus passes over. He rejects. No one has ever heard that idea and thought to themselves, that's not fair. It's the definition of fairness according to the way that we think. But that means that their teaching does not create the same objections that Paul anticipates to his teaching. That has to be a problem for us. We have to think about those things if we're taking their arguments of Scripture seriously. So that's one way that this helps us theologically to see the distinctions that we find in John 17. Another way that it helps us, and this tags on with that, we won't dwell on this. But another way that it helps us is by on its very face demonstrating the very impossibility of the categories within an Arminian understanding of salvation itself. Again, just think about the arguments here. The opposing argument would be, yes, Jesus does choose some and not others. We have to say that because we have passages like these. But he chooses them based on what he knows they're going to do, based on his knowledge of whether they will choose to trust him or reject him. My friends, what we have just seen in John 17 in Christ's prayer makes that impossible. Because all 12 of the disciples, 11 plus 1, were all united in one thing, weren't they? They were united by a complete and utter need to be guarded. What distinguished 11 from 1 in John 17, 12 is that one little word, except I guarded them so that not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Now, we either have to say that Jesus tried to guard Judas, but couldn't, which would render the whole notion of his guarding utterly impotent, and none of us should sleep tonight. Or we see that this was the difference between them. 
He guarded them, and he didn't guard Judas. They all required guarding in order to be kept. This is how Christ obeyed the call of his Father, by guarding those whom he was given. If that is the case, gone then is any possibility of a sinful human being being chosen on the basis of their foreseen free act of faith. We have to say no. The choosing is the commitment to guarding. The two are the same. And my friends, all we need to do to see this distinction demonstrated is to compare Judas to Peter. Listen to what our Lord said to Peter in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 31. He said to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. <clears throat> Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go. <laughs> Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. You remember, they've been arguing about who is the greater. Do you think that is an argument that Peter has stayed outside of, that he was quiet in? And we hear Jesus' gentleness. We hear his love as he considers this Peter who is so far from understanding the depth of his dependence upon Christ as they argue about who is the most worthy. And he decides to let Peter in on some hard realities. Satan demanded to have you. And if Satan has you, he will sift you like wheat. That's called defeat, my friends. Peter says, you don't need to worry, Jesus. I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus says, you are utterly not ready. In fact, in your strength... You are doomed to fail. Want to know how easy that will be? By this time tomorrow, you will have denied three times that you even know me. My friends, what do you think the persistence of your faith and your trust in Christ has depended on all this time? Do you think it's been you, your willpower, your, the depth of your understanding? If Christ does not guard us, we will fall. That might be a perfectly acceptable purpose statement for the doctrines of grace themselves. If Christ does not guard us, we will fall. Jesus says to Peter, you will turn away. But, verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What's the difference between Peter and Judas? The difference is that Jesus prayed for Peter's faith. Jesus guarded Peter's faith. And he can do this because he is what Hebrews 12 says he is. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Both men in need of humbling, both men even denying him, and yet one of them returns, one of them stays with the Lord to the end of his days, one of them becomes a pillar of the church itself. What's the difference? Not the superiority of Peter, the decision of Jesus to guard that man in faith. Now, John 17 has sent us down a bit of a rabbit hole, very related to what we're seeing overall. But let's just reestablish where we are here this morning. We have noticed that Jesus chose Judas in John 6 
and he did not choose him in John 13. So we've been exploring, especially the not choosing, the passing over of Judas by Jesus. We've said that Judas is passed over in terms of gracious, undeserved rescue, in terms of salvation, in terms of John 6, for example, that he is not one whom the Father has gifted to the Son. And in terms of John 17, that Jesus has not willed to guard him and therefore to keep him. And for the rest of our time this morning, I want us to see, and in particular from John 13, so you can come back there if you have gone elsewhere. I want us to see this from the point of view of a different heading. I want us to, th to think about the love of our Lord that is on display even in the midst of this situation with his betrayal. Jesus raises the notion to these disciples of his betrayal as an act of love. And in fact, in a way that is loving to all 12 of them who are there. It's an act of love to the 11, as we'll see in the way that he, he, he uses this news and even the way he delivers it for their sanctification. But we'll see as well that he handles the situation in such a way that he is even offering love to Judas himself. That's what's so amazing about this. First, the 11. And this is, in fact, the first thing that our Lord voices, that one intention of his in telling them about the betrayal is that it would serve them. Verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Do you hear his concern for them and for their faith, motivating him? Deeply unsettling times and events are near to them, hours away. And there is nothing more needful and more comforting than a reassurance. Don't we find this in our own lives in deep times of distress and uncertainty? There's nothing more needful than the reminder that God is, in fact, in complete control over the situation. He is not being caught off guard. Nothing is thwarting or interrupting his good purposes. This is what he reminds them of. Regardless of what's coming, God's plan is guaranteed to come to pass. He says the scriptures will be fulfilled. But of course, his concern isn't simply to reassure them of the general fact of that. And it's not even simply for them to know afterward that he has seen it coming. That's helpful for them to know he saw it coming, but that's not even his entire point. He points to this knowledge because of the implication of the knowledge. Verse 19, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. We've seen this phrase many times by now in John. We, we know that that word he is inserted in there for us in our English translation, that you may believe that I am. He's telling them, get ready. You're about to receive yet another display of who I am, my true identity. It's yet another display of divine knowledge of the Son. That he knows what is coming. In that way, it's a display of his true identity. The, div the divine nature of Christ. He is sent from the Father, eternally God, eternally with God, John 1.1. This puts that on display. But it's also a display of an identity, we find, that's not just divine in nature. It is also human. Jesus is, in his identity, as a human, the antitype of the Old Testament types. He is the substance right in front of them of all of the shadows of the Old Testament that have been pointing, pointing, pointing to who is going to come. This man is the true son of David, who would be a descendant of David and yet would even be called Lord by David himself. You remember when Jesus brought that up to stump his opponents? Tell me this, how is it that the, that the Christ is the son of David and yet David calls him his Lord and they have nothing to say? John has been pointing to this identity of the 
Jesus as the Davidic son time and time again. And then we find it here. Here stands before them the true son of David. Verse 18, what we read, quotes from Psalm 41. That's a psalm of David where David says these words. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. David is speaking in his own context in reference to a betrayal that he suffered. In David's time, there was one who was a close companion of David, who was a, an advisor to David, who ate his bread with him, close relation, trusted. And he betrayed him. His name is Ahithophel. And see if these details ring any bells to our current context. He betrays this man. The betrayal of David does not ultimately exceed, succeed. And when the betrayal fa fails, Ahithophel goes and he hangs himself. Is this sounding familiar with the situation here with Judas? The Holy Spirit is not just going to bring Jesus' statements back to mind for these disciples later. He's going to bring them to mind and lead them, illumine their minds, lead them into an understanding that is able to put all of these pieces together. And Jesus, as an act of love for them, is just planting all of these seeds so that they will know when the time comes, not just that Jesus saw it coming. They will know more about who this man is. They will know his identity. I am. This is a handling of his coming betrayal that deliberately works to use the situation to give them confidence, to prepare them, to love them. He is loving his own to the end. So the relaying of the betrayal is a tool in Jesus' hands as he continues to love the eleven by preparing them to interpret his betrayal rightly. But he also is acting here in a way that shows incredible love toward Judas himself. And I think here we've saved one of the most significant elements of today's passage until the end. And that is that we're clearly seeing Jesus to the end extend a genuine offer of love to Judas. Just consider some things in the scene here as it's happening. Consider, for example, how completely unexpected Judas's betrayal is to them. We can tell that in here, can't we? He tells them that one will betray him, and they have no idea who it is he's talking about. In fact, we know from the Synoptic Gospels, so much do they not suspect Judas or any of them for that matter, that at the news from Jesus that one of them is going to betray him, their first instinct is to even question themselves. Is it I, Lord? What this means is that for three years of life and ministry with them, during which time Jesus always knew the identity of the coming betrayer, for the entire time, this means is that Jesus never treated Judas differently than he did the rest of them. No indication from him. Consider the night itself, even the arrangement that they're in there at the table. And how we see Jesus reaching out in love to Judas. Not only has Jesus just washed Judas's feet, but what we find in the details here is that Jesus has given Judas a position of great honor at the table with him, the highest position of honor. We know about their social customs. They got from the Romans this habit in important meals of reclining at table in a U-shaped pattern. They had a special table for these, these uh, events. And we know how this functions. The, the host or the most significant person at the meal sits at the bottom of the U lays there. They're all laying on couches with their feet angling away from the table. That's the most important position. The second most important position is to the left of that person. And then the third most honored position is to the right of that person. And so the host could use this, this, um, this custom to honor particular people that they wanted to honor. And Jesus here is able to have, just think about this, he is able to have a private, inaudible conversation, both with John, we hear that here in verses 24 to 26, 
and with Judas. Matthew 26, 25 tells us he had a verbal interaction with Judas that nobody else was able to hear. John is laying to Jesus' right so that he can just lean his head back and he's right at the chest of Jesus. And he can ask him this question that he asks him. Which means the person who was given the position to the left of Jesus, the position of greatest honor at the table, was Judas. Where Jesus can lean and be right at the chest of Judas. And what happens during the meal? Jesus takes and dips his piece of bread and offers it to Judas. Again, a well-understood gesture that we have record of. You do this as a host as in the midst of the meal at different points to, to honor, to demonstrate friendship. It's a special mark to receive from the hand of the host. Now, here is where I, I would offer even a bit of speculation. I think it is some of these details are speculative, but I don't think it's unwarranted speculation. Look at verses 26 and 27. Notice the order of things here. Jesus dips the bread and gives it to Judas. Judas takes the bread. And after that, it says, Satan entered into him. And just remember, the disciples are in a moment of stunned silence here as this bombshell has just been delivered that one of them is going to betray their Lord. Judas knows and now Judas knows that Jesus knows. And then suddenly, Judas looks up, and Jesus is offering him this morsel, this gift of friendship. And I can't imagine that Jesus is doing that and isn't looking Judas right in the eye as he does it. He has not yet made Judas' plans public. What is our Lord doing? It seems to me that he is even then providing opportunity for Judas to repent, to confess his sin. And if he were to repent to find forgiveness. Now, be very clear, Jesus knows that the betrayal is inevitable. It has been foreseen and declared in Scripture. It is inevitable. But here's what's very important for us to understand this morning, and we can miss this easily. We often do. He doesn't just know that the betrayal is inevitable. He knows that the nature of that inevitability is not some sort of pagan fate concept. It is what we describe as a compatibilistic reality. Jesus knows that this inevitability of the betrayal is going to come about by means of a true and genuine choice that the betrayer will make when that moment comes. No one is compelling Judas to do this against his will. He is responsible for what he is planning. Jesus says in Mark 14, 21, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. This is speaking of his betrayal. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. There is a choice to be made here, a choice for which we are responsible. It is inevitable that he will make that choice. But when he does, that's exactly what it will be. It will be his choice. And in that moment, he hasn't made it yet. And until he does, until that last moment, what he finds is Jesus beckoning to him with patience, with love, with a genuine invitation to humble repentance and therefore to finding mercy. Jesus looks at that man and G Judas knows that he knows. And Judas has a decision to make. Will my face soften into sorrow and repentance, or will it harden into concrete rejection? And Judas makes his choice. And in making that choice, he has now submitted himself entirely to the will of the deceiver. 
He has aligned himself by his very choice with the enemy. Satan did not make him do this. Judas chose to align his will with Satan's. And it says, Satan entered into him. And it is only then that Jesus says to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Nobody else hears it. Only Judas. He runs from the room. Actually, let me make an adjustment there. That is heard. They have words between them that is only heard by Judas. That description is heard by the, by the eleven. And they're confused by it, aren't they? They're not sure what it is that he's leaving to do. They have their, uh, they're, they're hoping the best, they're expecting the best from him. But he responds to these words from the Lord by running from the room. And we have then what I think we could call the most theologically heavy time-telling in the gospel here in verse 30, where it concludes by saying, and it was night. It was night, all right. Judas responds to this confrontation from the light of the world by fleeing into the darkness to get away. And we know all about the light-darkness imagery that John has been using in this gospel, don't we? So we watch here as John 3.19 takes on actual flesh and bones, and Judas runs into the night. What went wrong with Judas? It was not a lack of good example. It wasn't a lack of good teaching. It wasn't a loveless existence. Judas had had the best of all of those things. And you know what that means for us this morning is it means that any in here who have persisted in their unbelief, it means that those things are not sufficient excuses for you either. They're not justifications for any that we know personally who have rejected the testimony of God's word. Their problem isn't that they were mistreated by a church in the past. It isn't that they have not been sufficiently presented with persuasive teaching. It isn't because they have not been loved enough in their lives. To be sure, the presence of all of those things is powerful, and God uses those good things. And when they are absent, it is a tragedy with consequences. But there, the lack of those things does not explain unbelief at its root when it's found. And the best evidence of that is here in the person of Judas, who had the best of all of those things and rejected the Lord. What does this show us is the real problem then? What is the explanation for unbelief? The explanation is that apart from God's work, we are born and live and die with a hopelessly stubborn, rock-hard heart that is hostile to God and which, in fact, belongs to our very natures. We are not neutral creatures. The only hope for such as that, it's not education. It's not better or more loving parents. It's not any of those things. Those things are powerful, significant means that God most certainly will use to accomplish His purposes. But the base of hope is this. That it's that Christ Jesus would choose to step out towards us in mercy. Active work on our behalf, calling him, us to himself. Praying for us. Guarding us. And in those ways, keeping us. He owes this to no one. But oh, how gracious our God has been. I think that when we do justice to the example of Judas as he is given to us in Scripture, it might prove to be one of the most helpful guides to our own thoughts about God's sovereignty in salvation. The eleven, and especially in what Christ says to Peter, present us with a picture of absolute safety. And safety, 
not because of some super spirituality in us. Again, just cue Peter. That's really clear and clarifying. Not because of that, but instead why? Because we learn that Jesus is committed to guarding his people. They are all of them weak and frail. They do believe, yet they wrestle with unbelief. They stumble in many ways. They are slow to understand. But as represented by the 11 in this farewell discourse, Jesus comforts them with the best of news. You are not safe because of your grip on me, but because of my grip on you. And if that is the source of your safety, you are safe. And the evidence of his commitment to you, the the fruit of that relationship being wrought in us by his power, by the work of the Holy Spirit, that evidence will bear itself out over time. In that despite the presence of failings and sin, we know that there is nowhere else to go. We know God's word is telling the truth about us. We have come to see that this book knows us. We've seen God's hand at work in our lives. We can look back because he has given us eyes to see. We can look back and see him guiding us and protecting us. We know that if Christ has died for us, our greatest need has been met. And for all of those reasons, we cling to him. This is what bears out his work in our lives. Peter is going to run into darkness himself in the next few hours, weeping after denying his Lord. But not many days after that, when he sees that same Lord standing on the shoreline, Peter will throw himself into the sea to get to Jesus. So what has Judas done for us this morning? He has warned us to cling to Christ. And he has shown us why those who have done so, those who have come to Jesus for life, need never be afraid again. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, over and over again we find that we we face nothing in this life that you have not equipped us to face. And we stand together in awe this morning at the display of your might, the display of your commitment to your people, the display of your love, even love extended toward your enemies. God, help us today to draw all the nearer to your Son and to experience the rest, the assurance, the comfort that that presence very rightly gives. We thank you this morning for your word and for your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Let me invite you once more. Would you stand together with me? Let's respond to our Lord and the gift of his word with song.